From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. As we live through the COVID-19 pandemic and the height of the climate change crisis, many are beginning to take a closer look at our exposures to environmental toxins and chemicals in the world that impact health in many ways. Toxins and harmful chemicals often exist in the buildings we work and live in, the furniture we buy, and the apparel we wear. As part of the Harvard Healthy Buildings program at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Dr. Anna Young is conducting research on tracking chemical exposures across different physical environments. Dr. Young, thank you for joining us and welcome to Think Research. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Brendan. So you're a member of the Harvard Healthy Buildings Program uh, at the Harvard T.H. Chan School in the Department of Environmental Health. Tell us about this program um, and why there's a need for research in this field. Right, so this program, the Healthy Buildings Program is led by Dr. Joseph Allen. I've been a part of the team for about five years now. And what we're trying to study is how we can use buildings as a tool to protect and enhance our health because we spend the vast majority of our time indoors, especially during COVID. So that's where a big portion of our exposures are happening. And specifically in my field of chemical exposures, we're trying to conduct research that informs solutions and real world interventions like healthier materials to reduce our exposures and enhance health. Excellent. So you started out in computer science um, and you now study chemical exposures, what made you want to change fields? Right. So I started in computer science when I didn't know much about environmental health. And I think like many people, I assumed that the products we buy on shelves are safe and that the chemical ingredients in them are tested for safety. Uh, But when I worked as a computer scientist at an environmental policy group, I started realizing that that's not true that there are thousands of chemicals undisclosed in products, many of which aren't even tested for safety, and others which we know are harmful to our health and don't need to be added to these products. Um, And that really concerned me. And I realized that the burden shouldn't be on us consumers to take on this impossible task of figuring out which products aren't toxic. Uh, So I wanted to uh, work on research that helps inform solutions like healthier materials and healthier products that that make this the default option on shelves, not the exception, so that consumers can trust that what they're buying is automatically by nature safe. So your group you mentioned, um, led by Dr. Joseph Allen, you received a Catalyst pilot grant through the uh, Environmental Toxins um, Grant Funding Round um, to look at the presence of endocrine disrupting chemicals in office settings and their effects on people. So 
tell us a little bit about these chemicals um, and how they affect people. Sure. Well, first of all, many thanks to the Harvard Catalyst Program for this this grant opportunity. We're really excited to get started. Um, so as some background for the motivation for this project, uh, we are exposed to really complex mixtures of hundreds of chemicals in our buildings. They're coming from our furnishings, our building materials, our consumer products. But what's concerning is that those chemicals continuously travel out of the materials and they build up in the dust and air in our buildings. And because of that, nearly every single one of us is exposed to these hormone disrupting chemicals, uh, especially because we're breathing and ingesting that, that dust and air all day long. Uh, and exposure to these chemicals has been linked to effects on fertility, pregnancy success, uh, child development, thyroid function, obesity, and diabetes. So we're really concerned about uh, the hormone disrupting effects of these chemical mixtures. I want to talk about the kind of the design of this uh, project and um, it's building off of previous work that you've done um, where you had people, office workers wearing silicone wristbands to kind of detect um, the level or presence of certain chemicals. Could you tell us a little bit about the design and why you chose to do that? Sure. So these silicon wristbands are just like those Livestrong bracelets, but the silicone material can actually absorb chemicals from the air and dust and products we're interacting with while we, we wear the wristband. So it's a really cool tool to capture our personal exposures to chemicals from the external environment. They're really simple. Um, and unlike traditional blood or urine samples, they are less expensive, they are not as invasive, and they can actually distinguish and pinpoint exposures just to the external environment. Whereas blood and urine also capture what you're putting into your body from food and drink, the silicon wristbands help us isolate just one environment. So in this study that the Catalyst um, grant project is, is working on, uh, we had office workers wear the silicon wristbands only at work in their office building for one work week. So we were able to specifically pinpoint the office building as an environment through which people are exposed to these chemicals collected on the wristbands. And you looked at differences between countries too, which I thought was really interesting. Talk a little bit about that, uh, some of the uh, differences in exposures. We found that these office workers in the four different countries, the US, UK, China, and India, had really different exposures depending on the country, depending on you know, the building characteristics, and depending on what personal products they were using. Um, and what was really interesting is that we found that office workers were still exposed to chemicals that had even been banned or phased out decades ago which just shows the persistence of these chemicals and the persistence of the use of old building materials. Um, and even, you know, when some chemicals are banned or phased out, you know, there are often harmful substitutes to those chemicals. And we found office workers were widely exposed to harmful chemical substitutes. We talked about when we spoke previously, 
the actual differences in like the types of chemicals. Could you just explain maybe the particular differences uh, between the different uh, countries? Sure. So it was interesting that some regulations in countries meant there were higher exposures and some regulations meant there were lower exposures. So in the US and UK, for example, there were historically more stringent flammability standards that almost necessitated the use of harmful flame retardant chemicals in foam furniture. And we saw that the office workers in our study in the US and UK often had much higher exposures to many of these harmful flame retardants than China or India. Whereas on the other hand, uh, the office workers in the study in India were exposed to much higher levels of pesticides, which we think was because of fewer restrictions and also their unique need of pesticides for malaria control, for example. Um, and so those are just some of the examples um, showing how different countries can be. And we found that the exposures that differed by country often reflected differences in restrictions. And it just struck me, it's interesting that you talked about pesticides when, you know, up till now in the conversation, we're kind of talking about things that are in the materials that come, you know, as part of the process of building it or making it. But the, I mean, a pesticide is coming in through outside air or is maybe getting tracked in on clothing or shoes. And so it it goes beyond just the materials that are that make up the building. It's also expands to just the environment in general. Right. And we often think of pesticides as something you spray on the lawn or in agriculture, but actually they're sometimes often sprayed in the building for pest control. Um, mm. So that's an indoor source within an office building. Um, we did see that some of the buildings like in India in our study did spray pesticides indoors. And sometimes pesticides are even impregnated into materials like textiles or woods. So for the Catalyst grant project, um, we're going to bring these chemical mixture exposures one step closer to health by conducting human hormone cell assays of those silicon wristband samples. So basically how this works is that the, a lab exposes human cells to the chemical mixtures collected on those wristband samples and then assesses how much interference there is with hormone receptors. So for example, we can see how much those chemical exposures mimic estrogen or testosterone or thyroid hormone in human cells in the lab. And what's really unique about this is that usually we talk about the hormone disrupting implications of individual chemicals and we test each chemical on its own in the lab. But this new method we're evaluating reflects the total hormonal bio bioactivities of the entire mixtures of chemicals that people are actually exposed to in the real world. And those mixtures of hundreds of chemicals include chemicals we don't even know about yet or that we can't even measure in the lab. So it's really reflecting potential hormone disruption of those complex chemical mixtures. Hmm. You said potential hormone disruption. Um, how much is actually known about 
the ways in which hormones are disrupted by these chemicals. I mean, you at the beginning you you mentioned you know that these types of chemicals and I don't know if we've named any of the chemicals, but um, I know there's thousands. Um, and so, what? Maybe a, if you could give us like a little more specifics about what is actually known about this and um, about these, you know, types of endocrine disrupting chemicals. Right. So there are many studies that have established that these chemicals are harmful to human health. And the way a lot of these studies work is they measure the levels of chemicals in blood or urine in people and associate that with, um, you know, a certain outcome like um, inability to become pregnant. Uh, but what this study is is trying to look at is an early marker of the hormone disruption of chemical exposures specifically in our office buildings. Uh, whereas, you know, those other studies look at cum cumulative exposure from all routes of how you're exposed to these chemicals. We're trying to get a little bit closer to the source and inform, you know, where and how we intervene on those chemicals. And, you know, we know that these chemicals in isolation interfere with those hormone receptors, and, which can lead to, you know, issues with reproductive health. We measured hundred different types of these chemicals across six different chemical classes. So you may have heard of phthalates, which are plasticizers used in final flooring, cables, food packaging. Um, they're used in cosmetics and all sorts of consumer products. Uh, we also looked at many different types of flame retardant chemicals, which are added to home furniture, electronics, insulation. We also um, looked at polychlorinated biphenyls, which are also called PCBs, um, have been used in building sealants and caulking and are sometimes in paint. Uh, we also looked at pesticides, uh, which can be applied in buildings, are even used in building materials sometimes, and can track indoors. Th that's just a, a small selection. Which of those are banned? Like, which of those are banned in the US? PCBs, I would imagine, are, right? Yeah, so this is really interesting. The PCBs were banned decades ago in the US. But we know that building materials stick around for a long time. I think about half of building commercial buildings in the US are at least 50 year, years old, something like that. Um, and, you know, we saw that these office workers, even in the US, are still exposed to those banned PCBs. And what's also interesting is that there was a, another type of PCB we found um, that many of the office workers were exposed to that's not covered under that ban. We expect all the PCBs to be banned, but because this is an unintentional byproduct in paint in buildings, it's not actually covered under the ban. So it's this unexpected um, use of what we think are banned PCBs. Yeah, and you think about school building, you know, if PCBs were banned in schools in what, the 1970s or something? Like how many school buildings are older than that? A lot. Right, the, the building stock in the US can be quite old and it 
takes a lot of money to remediate those PCBs and get them out. So that just shows how important it is to make good decisions now on what chemicals we put in materials because those chemicals will last a long time. Those building materials will be used for a long time um, and affect exposures and health of generations to come. Mm. As somebody who didn't know anything about this and then started working at an environmental company and learned all about this, was there a moment when you realized like, whoa, this is a huge problem I had no idea about and I really want to do something about it? I think that was when I found out about this issue of chemical whack-a-mole, we like to call it, where we often phase out or avoid a certain harmful chemical, like BPA. I always look for BPA-free plastic water bottles, for example. Um, but I soon found out that in this program that uh, those chemicals, when they're phased out one at a time, they're often replaced with similarly harmful chemicals, often in the same chemical group. Um, for example, BPS, BPF, they're very structurally similar to BPA um, and used as, as harmful substitutes. So becomes this wild goose chase as we're trying to figure out what's being used next, what are the health implications, and how do we get those chemicals out? Whereas a more holistic solution would be to remove the entire chemical group because we know the entire chemical group is harmful hmm. and similarly concerning. And um, so talk. can you talk a little bit about the healthy materials movement or the healthy... Is there a healthy buildings movement? Is that, am I just confusing it with the name of the program? Yeah, I think there's there's been a lot of effort on the healthier materials movement in the last five or so years, um, especially, I know Harvard, for example, has, um, in the Office for Sustainability, has worked to update their purchasing standards to only buy healthier materials for certain product categories. And that's seen as a way to create a signal from the demand side of the market to manufacturers that, you know, this is what people want, um, that, you know, you're leveraging all of your purchasing power to, to push the market to switch to healthier materials. And so we actually had an opportunity in um, a recent study of ours to evaluate the effectiveness of a healthier materials intervention in real buildings. We studied rooms and buildings where they were renovated with healthier furniture and healthier carpet that were completely free of all types of flame retardant chemicals and stain repellent chemicals called PFAS. And we found that the levels of these chemicals in the dust in those rooms with the full healthier materials were more than halved compared to the rooms without those full healthier materials. And that was important because those healthier materials focused on removing the entire groups of harmful chemicals, not just one chemical at a time. And didn't the new science center, wasn't that built with all like healthy materials? Yes, and that's a perfect example to show that these are actionable, cost-effective, real-world solutions that actually work. If you can 
put in all healthier materials in a space like that, where there are offices, cafeterias, classrooms, wet lab spaces. Um, it's with that many square square feet, it, it just goes to show that these healthier materials work and you don't have to sacrifice on aesthetics or performance. Hmm. And so that's something that, you know, somebody like Harvard can do with huge purchasing power and, um, you know, money to build new buildings. What can, I guess, what can like people do on an everyday basis? What, what kinds of things do you do as somebody who studies this? Yeah, I think one good tip is to try to avoid the chemical flame retardants in foam furniture, which actually aren't needed. And a way to do that is to look at the tag underneath like your couch, for example, and it should have a flammability label that tells you whether or not it has added flame retardants. That's, that's a new label that came out um, in the last decade. And so you can look to buy furniture that doesn't have those flame retardants. And you can also search for brands that are trying to remove PFAS stain repellents from furniture as well. So Dr. Anna Young uh, from the Healthy Buildings Program at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you very much. Uh, It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thanks, Brendan, for this great discussion. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.